The Messy Middle podcast is hosted on Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free, which considerably helps with all of the production costs you normally have, except that on Anchor, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on all platforms, including Spotify, Apple, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum audience through sponsorships and monthly contributions from your subscribers. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. This is Alyssa Lenick of Littlest Fitness. And I'm Kate, otherwise known as Coach Carmichael. We are PhD students, endurance athletes who lift, outdoors enthusiasts, and entrepreneurs. We believe the narrative of the fitness and wellness industry is often far too extreme. So forget about the black and white messages that you've heard. On this podcast, we believe that life is best lived in the messy middle. Welcome back to the Messy Middle Podcast. Today, it should come as no surprise that I've brought another mental health professional to our show. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Amanda Leibovitz. I just didn't realize that... Am I pronouncing your last name right? Yeah, yeah, you are. I realized I didn't even check with you. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, you're one of the few that nailed it on the first try, so... All right, well, I... Stars all around. Well, I should know it. I think I've heard it like a f- quite a few times when we were in school together, but okay. Um, well, hi, cat's out of the bag. Dr. Amanda Leibovitz is here um, and she's um, joining our podcast today. Uh, we crossed paths when I was a master's student at University of North Texas, and that's where she completed her PhD. I'll let you, uh, I'll let her tell us all about that in a moment. Um, but since we parted ways, she's gone on to create epic wellness and performance, providing individual therapy, mental skills for performance enhancement, lifestyle coaching and so much more. Amanda is an incredibly hardworking individual and somebody I've definitely looked up to in many ways. We share a lot of similar interests. We have like really weird uh, life culminating events that happen to us. Like I might be <laughs> following her to Washington. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> but so I'm honored to know her. I'm a really, really, truly inspired by her in a lot of ways. She has done some incredible things um, that I'm just learning and that you are about to learn about. Um, so I'm really excited to have her here and to have her share her expertise with all of you. So welcome to the podcast. Oh, gosh. Yes. Thank you so, so much. I have been following your podcast since it was born oh. into the world. And I've just really admired how you and Alyssa have like fully committed and leaned into giving voice to like that space between the sea of polarized opinions and information. Um, Because it's all too evident in this world of like health, fitness and wellness that we're operating in. So it's so neat to get to participate and contribute to the incredible work that you're doing. I'm like so excited. Thank you so much. That's so kind. Okay. We're just going to get so gushy here too. Because I also want to say fun fact that um, I don't know, Amanda, if you remember, but uh, so Amanda's an Ironman. We'll talk about that. Um, And I, (laughs) of course, have gone, started my journey. I actually signed up for the full uh, this September if if it happens. Yay. You know, um, so, cool. so she was one of the first people I went to when I was first considering jumping in the triathlon world. I remember like sitting outside of uh, like the men's gym, uh, <laughs> on, like, oh, a bench or something. The dungeon? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, tell me everything I need to know. Like I'm going into this blind. And I, I actually remember you saying like for the first time that I might need a wetsuit. And I was like, oh, I had not even thought about that. <laughs> so I would love if you could share your journey into triathlons because I just realized I don't even really know how you got there. 
Oh, totally. Yeah. It's actually a pretty funny story that involves a few glasses of wine. Yes. Um, because what good stories start without a little drink or two. Um, but as kind of we were talking about earlier, I played volleyball throughout middle school, high school, and then in college. Um, and so I was really used to kind of this like organized part of my life yeah. that was focused around physical activity and especially competition. And that was really fun. And so I kind of moved home because I did my undergrad in the UK. So I kind of like moved back to the Chicago suburbs and didn't have any of the structure that like university life provides and particularly around like physical activity. And so I had throughout my life pretended to have asthma, like through my volleyball career, I did not like running or like anything that required like fast twitch muscle fibers. It was not my lane. I did not want to be there. And so um, I was kind of at this intersection. And this is why it's funny is that I, I was like, Oh, I kind of need something to do to occupy my time because I miss being physically active and I'm feeling kind of lost and I just need some big goal. And at the time I was working for an international nonprofit, like out of my parents' basement. <sighs> and I, we had like a marathon, a charity running team for the Chicago marathon, like back in 2011. And I was recruiting people to sign up for this marathon. And so of course I'm reaching out to like people that I knew and I was like, Hey, do you want to run this marathon for charity? Like it was no big thing to run a marathon. Right. And they're like, well, I'll do it if you do it. And so I'm like, up. Oh, down the Pino. Oh like, gosh. okay, I'm doing it too. And so I kind of woke up the next morning because, you know, signing up for a race is the easiest part of signing yes. up for of like doing anything. Yeah. Um, and I was like, what did I do? And so I started telling people and a lot of people that knew me throughout like high school and even in college were kind of like laughing. They're like, you don't run, like, don't you have asthma? And so I had to like <laughs> go back on this whole story that I had like created for so long to either just like, provide an explanation of why I was so slow when we were doing run drills or to like get out of them completely because I was so embarrassed oh about being slow. And so like that just cracks me up. But um, kind of the really transformative thing for me was that my dad, who I didn't have a close relationship with at the time, like he had said, I'll do it with you. And so we got to have this whole journey together of me like Run, like running a 17 minute mile. Like it was not pretty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, of like going from that to like both having our first marathon finish Amazing. in the course of the year. And it really like took our relationship as father and daughter to a whole other level. Um, but again, like you, I, you asked about triathlon and that's obviously marathoning. So I'm training for this triathlon. I'm out with, to dinner with some friends again, wine was involved yeah. and All the someone, someone at the table, it was like my friend's one of my friend's boyfriends at the time was like, oh, well, if you can run a marathon, you can do a triathlon. And so I go home that night and I sign up for a sprint and an Olympic. Like, oh my I gosh, don't you know just jumped straight when in. the last time I rode a bike was. I didn't have a bike. Wow. Um, like, just totally like, how hard can it be? And it turns out it was pretty difficult. Uh, uh -huh. <laughs> but like, kind of went all in, hired a coach, did whatever, did my first triathlon. And I was like, this is what I meant to be doing, at least like from an athletic standpoint. Yeah. And it was so freeing because I've struggled with anxiety and depression and post-traumatic stress throughout my whole life. And I remember like crossing that first finish line and thinking, wow, this is a whole new way to like relate to myself. Yeah. And it was not in a way that was like 
you're a piece of garbage, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so I was like, gosh, I'm hooked. I just got to keep doing more. So then the next year I did my first half Ironman. And then I started doing like more and more and getting, you know, a few years passed. And then I was finally a bit more competitive. And I eventually qualified for the half Ironman world championships in Australia. The same year I finished my first Ironman in Canada, which was super cool. Um, and at the same time, I was also, um, I had the opportunity to work as a guide for blind athletes in both triathlon and cycling. So I did that for a little while. Um, but mainly I was like super thankful for the segue into the sport as an athlete, because my nerdy self was like, Ooh, I want to learn more about this so I can work with other people. And so my coaching career as like an actual endurance coach started just a couple of years after I got involved with the sport. And that has really grown to evolve in a really wonderful way where I've had the opportunity to work with like, you know, teens who are just getting started in the sport all the way up to Olympic and Paralympic hopefuls. Um, I've gotten to coach at the Olympic training center for, um, some of the development camps for USA paratriathlon and probably my favorite coaching gig that I have right now is I get to coach cycling for the special operations command warrior games team. So a few weeks out of every year, I get to go to Florida and kind of yell at people on bikes. And <laughs> it's just such a fun experience. Um, it was a very long winded story of how I got into triathlons, but it's no, definitely it. been something that's been so transformative um, for me and who I am and also my career path that I know we're going to talk about a bit yeah. later. And I, and I think that it surprised me. So I did not know that you did collegiate <laughs> volleyball in the UK, mind you. I did not know that about you at all. And it surprises me because I feel like a lot of triathletes are born from other individual sports or one of the three disciplines or so like going from a team sport, it straight into marathoning into triathlons, like, girl, you really did it. Like, (laughs) (laughs) totally. Yeah. It's so funny too. Cause it's like, I almost feel like I shouldn't say I did like collegiate triathlon because collegiate sports in the U.S. are such a big thing. And in the U.K., like the actual like university teams, no one comes to any of the games. (laughs) They're like very low key under the radar because all of the really phenomenal athletes are like recruited by city teams and other things. uh So they're not playing for universities. Um, But it was still such a neat experience to get to like practice with a team. And I got to travel all over England to compete at other universities. So that was super cool. Um, but yeah, going from a team sport to an individual sport was quite the transition. And it was also a pretty welcome one in that, like, I only, it was all me, you know, like my success or my stumbles were something that I could take full responsibility for. And like, not necessarily in a blaming way, but, um, if if you're, when your success is all you, you know, know? exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And like, it's like, I'm getting up just for me. And so yeah. like the kind of underlying message is that if I'm willing to do this for me, then like you're, we're kind of like reinforcing our sense of self-worth. Yeah. Like I'm worth getting up and doing this four hour bike ride on a Sunday morning when I'd rather be brunching with friends because my goals are important. So it's like this yeah. really cool cycle in that like we get to fully own what we're doing and also like validate ourselves in the process. Yeah. Oh, I love that perspective. Oh my goodness. Okay. So now that we have a little history on your, your sports journey, (laughs) um, I'd love to share with our listeners, your messy middle journey, which, um, we normally talk about that in the professional context because you're here to share your expertise. Um, so how did you come to create Epic Wellness and performance and what was that journey like for you? Oh gosh, another long story. I apologize. No, no, in advance. no apologies. Um, <laughs> We're here for it. 
Um, so I have kind of always felt like I've existed in like the space between mm. um, throughout my academic and professional careers and that I felt like I always had like one foot in two different camps, Yeah, which has been beautiful and transformative because I've not gotten to be like put in a box and like kind of had my perspective put in a box. So I was like an American student learning about international communications in the United Kingdom, which has a very different perspective on that. Mm-hmm. So like kind of always being challenged and like pulled in different directions. And at, during my master's degree, I got my master's in counseling with a specialization in sport and health psychology. Um, but like, I was really focused on how we could better serve athletes with physical disabilities and particularly military veterans. Um, but the majority of my cohort or a lot of my cohort was really wanting to work for like professional sports teams. Mm -hmm. And so it was like kind of this, like I had this like moment where I'm like professional athletes aren't the only ones who get to benefit from this. And so like, why is like the emphasis and like, you know, professional sports being put on a pedestal? Like, yes, certainly they deserve access to all of these great skills and support, but so do literally everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, you have like kind of the big money-making sports and that's of course where people's attention are when we're young and we're just learning and kind of forming our professional selves and like have these career goals. And we want to be able to like keep the lights on and put food mm-hmm. on the table. So it's easy to get pulled into, you know, what is a, a viable career option that I can support myself with. And also kind of like what's sexy, you know, like we're saying I work for an NBA team is like yeah. a pretty sexy thing to say, saying like, oh, I support community athletes at the local YMCA is very meaningful work, not as sexy. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there's a lot of, you know, kind of stuff out in the world that kind of pulls a lot of energy, attention and funding towards certain populations at the expense of many other populations that would benefit just as much. Um, And so my plug for adaptive sport is that our athletes that we have, our Paralympic athletes, our deaf athletes, our visually impaired athletes, um, pretty much have all the same psychosocial needs as our able-bodied athletes or non-disabled athletes. But they're still this like grossly overlooked and underserved population, not only in sport, but also in general life. Um, But then, you know, fast forward to my time at UNT, um, where my PhD was in educational psychology with a concentration in the psychosocial aspects of sport and exercise. Yes. And um, I have that same so emphasis for my master's, and I hate <laughs> saying it every time. <laughs> I know. I'm like, one of my hidden talents is picking degrees with long titles. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'm like, people ask me like, oh, what was your PhD? And I'm like, do I have to the tell whole you? thing? Do you want uh, the whole thing? All of it. All of it. Um, but so I as I I know, like we've had discussions about, but I am like an applied practitioner. Mm -hmm. Like that is where my heart is. I love research and there's so much value in it, but I'm like, I love working with people and groups and teaching and doing all of that. And somehow I ended up in a PhD that was all advanced statistics. (laughs) Yeah. Like heavily so. Yes. And I, there were quite a few instances where the other folks in my cohort would straight up ask me like, what are you doing in this program? Mm -hmm. So like kind of talk about being in the messy middle and that like, I'm someone who sees the value of research and being able to read and interpret it and know how research is designed and know how to like 
again, like interpret what this actually means Mm -hmm. in the real world and to be a voice to say like, how do we take all of this amazing research that people are doing and like put it to action in service of others? Because like, I know you and I have had conversations a bunch about how there's kind of this polarized thing between the practitioners and the researchers. And it's like, why don't we just talk to each other? Mm -hmm. Because like, you're not sitting in a lab doing your research being like, gosh, I hope nobody reads this or does anything with it. Yeah. (laughs) And I know that most coaches and applied practitioners are wanting to use evidence-based approaches Mm -hmm. to enhancing performance or improving mental health. And so it's like, why are there not more communication lines between these two camps to facilitate that? Right. Because you're doing your research to serve a population. We're doing our applied work to serve probably that same population in most cases. And yet we're not talking to each other. And that's a huge disservice to us and to the people who we're trying to serve. Right. And I think it's a um, just a comment on this to for those um, listening, because I think a lot of the times that's questions that people have is like, OK, well, if this research is being done, why don't we know about it or why why can't we access it? And I, I think some of the the systems in place with the current peer review system and the um, exclusive Mm -hmm. journal access uh, that most individuals can't even achieve, like acquire, um, is is really Mm -hmm. one of the larger barriers to even people being able to read what's available. Um, And then on the second hand, Mm -hmm. we're not teaching academics how to communicate science. Um, And so it's really difficult when we have these like applied camps that are teaching you how to work with individuals and these like research-based camps that are teaching you how to stay in a lab and um, keep your introverted self (laughs) away from communicating with others, which I like relate to in some ways, but, um, there's, there's no where in the system right now that really breeds that education to bridge the gap. So yeah, just wanted to comment on that. Totally. And then it, yeah. And then we get to like a, like we take one step even back from that as far as like what's being published in the journals, but let's talk about what's actually being funded. Right. Um, when we get into research about like trauma in particular and post-traumatic stress, the the research that is getting the most funding are the research projects that benefit pharmaceutical companies. And so there are a lot of avenues for treatment and healing that aren't getting re- like yeah. supported research and it's not mainstream because it's hard to get funding if a pharmaceutical company is like, well, if your hypothesis is true. It means people don't need the medicine we're making. Right. So why would we give you the money? Right. And you know, there's, like, there's no big um, company that is like giving you money for lifestyle approaches because it's a lifestyle, sure. right? Like It's harder to sell that. It, yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, I mean, that kind of bridges into like my actual applied career mm-hmm. then where I am a licensed mental health counselor and a certified mental performance consultant. So you have mental health and you have consulting or coaching Mm -hmm. that within the field, like everyone's screaming, well, you have to pick one or the other, right? You, you are either in clinical mental health or you are in performance enhancement, coaching and consulting. And I'm like, no, (laughs) like, no. Um, and so I created like Epic Wellness and Performance, which has actually like had quite a few names over the years and has evolved a great deal Ooh, as I have evolved. Could you share with us some of the, the no oh, non-starters? Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. So we were initially threshold performance consulting Mm -hmm. because I had this vision that I would be able to cater exclusively to endurance athletes Mm -hmm. and or athletes with disabilities. Um, And I was able to do that to an extent. But the more I learned about myself, what I believed to be true, like kind of my orientation toward mental performance Mm -hmm. and also mental health. I was like, that is so limiting because the same skills that I'm teaching these triathletes also work for like elite youth sailors, for example. And it's just like, let's be creative and apply them. They're just applied differently. Um, And so I didn't like that I had kind of pigeonholed myself Mm -hmm. into something that kind of was screaming like endurance, endurance, endurance. Um, And so then I just kind of transitioned to epic wellness and I was very much focused on kind of more like the wellness and lifestyle coaching and the biggest reason is because I was living in Texas at the time the mental performance consulting is not under any restrictions by like state laws Mm -hmm. like counseling licenses are and while I was getting my PhD and living in Texas it was kind of like just too complicated to have my license transferred and like do all the things that I needed to do so I put my mental health like practice on hold. Um, and then I moved to Washington and I finally finished my PhD and I'm like, I'm just going to go full send because I have been waiting to do all of this. I've been waiting until, you know, when I'm done with my doctorate to kind of like restart my clinical practice, like really do exactly what I had been planning to do for, you know, five years while I was in Texas. Um, and I did it and it's been absolutely amazing, but, um, the the practice itself just like really represents my belief that all people <laughs> can benefit from the set of skills Amen. that has really been put in a box designated for athletes. Yeah. And I say that with quotations. Um, and I also believe that all people benefit from mental health counseling, whether they have a diagnosable condition or not. And so mental health is performance enhancement and effective coping benefits everybody regardless of your goals and so like that is what I'm trying to capture with my practice and I offer a range of clinical and non-clinical services so that you get to choose your own adventure (laughs) Um, yes um, and so yeah that's kind of my practice in a nutshell and how I just like was so stoked to get to be on this podcast because I talk about the messy middle with clients and athletes and everything all the time And that it's not this or that it's most often this and that. And the, the sooner we can embrace that and learn to work with some of those like apparent contradictions, we realize that they're not contradictory at all. We're just kind of broadening our view and seeing more of the picture. Absolutely. And, and to the point where, um, the fields kind of separate that, um, mental performance and clinical, psychology, um, Mm -hmm. I just want to emphasize that a lot of the times, um, let's say that I'm a a triathlete, which I am, but like, let's say I'm coming to you for mental um, performance skills. It's very likely Mm -hmm. that there's something underneath there that maybe deserves some clinical attention that's preventing me from utilizing these mental skills, right, in the in the way Mm -hmm. that you would intend, right? And that seems so bizarre to me that we've like tried to separate and piece out um, these, like, I'm, I'm not even calling them disciplines, like separate discipline, because they are the same to me. Right? I, yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I love that you bring that up because a question that I often ask my, like the athletes that I'm working with on the mental performance side is um, like, what would your life be like if you didn't have this general anxiety in your day to day? And if that is a pretty significant difference for them, it says, well, I'm like, that's my indication of like, maybe you would benefit from seeing a counselor. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if I'm working with someone in the mental health capacity, I'm not their therapist. Right. And that can be dual roles and it can be confusing. Um, And oftentimes the athletes that I'm working with on the mental skills side are not in the state of Washington. So I actually couldn't work with them um, therapeutically. Mm. Um, But it's like you invest so much in your sport. Why are we kind of ignoring the most obvious thing? At least it's the most obvious to me. (laughs) But like if you are using sport to cope with depression – it might be helping you feel better about yourself, but the true source of the depression isn't related to sport. So doing sport is not going to resolve that. So what is going to be the harm in doing the work to maybe resolve or at least minimize and shrink down that depression so that you can be more fully engaged and actually enjoy your successes more fully in sport? So it's like, I'm, I'm like, I could just talk in circles. It's like a dog eating its own tail. But it always comes back to like, how could you not? Like, <laughs> right? No, and I, I love this. Um, let's talk a little bit more about this because I, I feel like, um, you know, your perspective on, let's say, like mindfulness and other mental skills. Um, mm-hmm. you, you've mentioned that these tools are not to reduce discomfort, right? Like, that's not solving the problem. <laughs> is kind of what you just said, right? So, as an athlete totally. or somebody who's even active or or somebody who's interested in gaining mental skills, um discomfort, as you said, is is an expected and maybe necessary part of the human experience. So if the goal is not to reduce comfort with these mental skills, what is the goal of mental skills? How should we approach them in the context of sport mm-hmm. or in life? Yeah. So um, kind of the main mental skill that I teach and that is like kind of undercurrents, everything that I do is this skill of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, and mindfulness is non-judgmental awareness of our moment to moment experience. And so it involves accepting things as they are, which are thoughts, feelings, and body sensations and not like facts or judgments about who we are as a person or what might happen 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. If like I eat the cookie today, Um, Mm -hmm. and so, and I know that I was like listening to one of your other episodes that you had with Julie and you were talking about something similar and that she was mentioning that she jumps from, if I don't finish my dissertation, I'm going to be a troll lady under the bridge. (laughs) And I like, I wanted to add to that whole metaphor where it's like, we make that conclusion, but then we act as if it's already true. Mm. And that's what is affecting our present day experience. So, and why we're feeling anxious. Um, If we're getting pulled back into the past and being like, every time I've tried to do a swim in a triathlon, I failed and needed to get pulled out of the water. And that's making us worried then we're like kind of accepting that what has already happened in the past is going to happen again now. And then we're responding as if that's true. So mindfulness lets us become aware of where our mind is going, what it's telling us, what are the related body sensations, what emotions might be coming up and simply not like not creating a story about what it means Mm -hmm. that 
I have butterflies in my stomach before the race or knowing that we can kind of like rewrite or rescript that story. Cause I know like you've posted about how like, you know, butterflies in your stomach are a sign of excitement for you. Yeah. And butterflies in our stomach. Yeah. Are really like a sign of readiness. Right. Because our whole fight or flight system is designed to get us to move. So if you're experiencing some of these physiological sensations, like um, increased breath rate, increased heart rate, butterflies in your stomach, or even like gastrointestinal distress. Um, I mean, the GI distress might indicate that you're getting outside of your zone of tolerance, but the whole fight or flight system is designed to prepare you to move. And if you're about to do a triathlon, like, gosh, why? Right, that, that's a good you're, thing. You're about to move. Like, <laughs> that's super helpful. And so that's why, like, it might be unpleasant or uncomfortable, but it doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you're, it's like a sure sign that you're going to fail. And so when I'm working with athletes and also with people in life, I'm, but like, I'm going to start with athletes in general, mm -hmm. but like yeah. discomfort is a part of your sport. Yeah. Like if you're comfortable running a marathon, <laughs> whether it be physical, emotional, whatever, you're probably not doing it right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, like what, like if you're a power lifter and you're like not feeling fatigue and strain at some point, it's like, maybe you're not doing what you need to be doing to perform at your best. Right. So like, if we accept that discomfort is a very expected and necessary part of our sport performance and particularly in competition, then we get to welcome those sensations as indicators that we're working at exactly the level that we need to be working mm -hmm. and not say like, Oh my gosh, my quads are burning at the end of this sprint triathlon where I just swam half a mile and biked for 12 miles. And I'm now running a 5k all out. Like, yeah, your quads should be burning at that point. <laughs> um, and so it's kind of saying like, yes, I am working as hard as I need to be working right now. And not saying like, oh my gosh, I'm going to bonk mm -hmm. because we know through experience and especially in training that like burning muscles doesn't mean that our whole body's about to quit. Yeah. It simply means that all of the functions that are happening at the muscular and cellular level are happening. And the byproduct of that is discomfort. <laughs> and so we don't have to judge any particular sensation as indicative of who we are as an athlete or what might happen even 30 seconds from that point in time. And so that's what I mean by like, the goal is not to reduce discomfort because reducing discomfort in that situation would be letting up. And maybe that's not what you need to do. Additionally, yeah. when we're able to approach discomfort with more of an observant and like curious beginner's mind, you know, like, like a, a child's yeah. mind, um, we are better able to discern between the pain of hard work and the pain of injury. Mm -hmm. And that reduces some of the like decision fatigue that comes from when you're like in a race, for example, and you're like, do I keep going? Do I push more? Do I need to back off? Like, especially when we get to our longer distance races where pacing is a huge part and like pacing and energy management are a huge part of the, of what we're doing. Um, but like knowing this is what it feels like when I'm working as hard as I need to be like, this is what it feels like to be riding my bike at threshold. Mm -hmm. And that's where I want to be right now versus like, this is what a hip injury feels like. <laughs> like this is not the familiar discomfort. This right. is a problem. Um, and so 
by trying to ignore or minimize discomfort, we put this blanket over it and that we're not getting to know it at all. And that means that anytime it comes up, it's going to be scary and confusing because we haven't taken the time to like make friends with it. And so I'm like, it can be helpful to just think of your discomfort in sport as like your weird cousin who like, you're like, maybe he's going to burn the building down. Maybe he's going to become a successful politician. (laughs) Like we just don't really know. Um, Like, you know, he's going to be at the party and you don't have to let him ruin your night. Like so true. You might have to like notice that he's there or like acknowledge that he's walked through the door, but like you don't have to engage with him any more than you're comfortable doing, Mm. but you don't just like pretend that he's not in the room. You know, like I mean, maybe you do, but um, that can be awkward in its own way. (laughs) And so then when we get into, when we get into the context of discomfort in life, yes, like, we all experience discomfort all the time. Like it's how we grow and evolve and it's part of the human experience. And like, we have been exquisitely designed to manage stress and discomfort. And when we ignore it or try to minimize it or tell ourselves that it's bad, we're like kind of denying our body the opportunity to complete the cycle mm-hmm. of how we deal with stress, for example. Yeah. And that's when things add up and become overwhelming and, and unmanageable. Like we have to stay there. So like really if the goal is to reduce discomfort. Yeah, I'm like <laughs> we're not we're not even doing it right that way. Year. Right. I mean <laughs> Yeah. So it's like it's not that we want to re- like I'm going to pause and backtrack for a second. There are some ways that we can make our lives easier for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that would be reducing some sort of discomfort. So if you are a person who is in school and grad school and you are a like um, procrastinator, for example, and you've got a big paper coming up and it's uncomfortable and you don't want to do the paper because either you feel like every single word that you write needs to be perfect the first time through, or it's just like going to take a lot of work and effort and you're fatigued because you're a grad student yeah. and you're like, I just like, are you describing my right life now. right I just now? Wanna, or... like, keep, yeah. I just want to keep scrolling through Instagram because like that is not fatiguing. Like I just can't. Um, so there's many reasons that we procrastinate, but it doesn't, deny the fact that procrastination is like a short-term solution to something that doesn't actually change the outcome. Like the paper still needs to be turned in. Right. And so if we have, if we're not like in that situation, we could be doing smaller chunks of work consistently over multiple days leading up to that. That's going to reduce the overall stress. Um, So like that would be an example of something that, you know, we, we can reduce discomfort, but it doesn't remove the stressor completely. Right. And so those are important things to like reflect on and evaluate because we don't need to make life harder for ourselves than it already is or is going to be. Right. What's the, but in the situations where life, sorry, um, there's a phrase that's like, uh, uh, something about like letting go of like short term, something for long term gains. (laughs) There's a phrase about this specifically as it relates to procrastination and discomfort. Um, and I'll just speak to the gist of it because since I can't uh, bring it up now. Yeah. But um, like with the that procrastination scenario, um, you're still going to be uncomfortable writing that paper because it's given you're putting forth a lot of effort or maybe there's other reasons why it's unsettling for you to work on that. So you're still being uncomfortable and sitting in that but ultimately as you go through you'll have less discomfort because it'll be eventually done ideally right whereas like otherwise if you're sitting on scrolling on your phone that looming like 
paper is still there and your event like you're momentarily escaping it but long term it's not helping (laughs) the messy middle podcast will be right back after a quick word from our sponsors Are you confused about what supplements you should actually be taking? In a world full of juice cleanses, detox teas, fancy promises, it can really be hard to trust anything. But high quality supplements, when dosed appropriately, can actually help support your fitness goals. And that's why I use Legion. I've been using Legion supplements since the beginning of this year, and after years of never really fully committing to one single brand due to lack of transparency in their labeling, unnecessary fluff, or just reporting things as blends and not knowing what's actually my product, I finally found a solid science-based product line that fits my supplementing needs. Legion's products are 100% naturally sweetened, and my favorite part, they are fully transparent in their labeling, and they use dosages that are actually backed by what the science says you need to be effective and support your fitness goals. And not the least amount you can get away with, and not just labeling as blends, but fully transparently telling you what's in your product and why they dosed it that way. And this is huge, because it lets you know exactly what you're taking and if it's actually going to be effective, and then you can know what's going into your body. My personal favorites are their cinnamon cereal whey. Yes, it tastes as good as it sounds. The mocha cappuccino plant protein. Pulse, their pre-workout, which comes in non-stimulant or caffeinated stimulant based. And Recharge, the recovery blend, which also gives me the creatine I need to move weights well in the gym. Legion offers 100% money back guaranteed if you're not happy with their products. And you can save 20% off your first order today with our code MESSYMIDDLE at checkout. That's M-E-S-S-Y. M-I-D-D-L-E at checkout to save 20% today. No, totally. That's, that's, that's absolutely it. And that like, it's kind of like, choose your heart. Like, do you want to be mildly or moderately uncomfortable a little bit each day for two weeks? Or do you want to need to pull two back-to-back all-nighters at 30 years old, which takes you as, you know, like a month to recover from now because we're no longer 19. And Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like doing that like cost-reward analysis can sometimes help like kind of shift the balance and be like, oh, I'm going to try. It's almost like why, again, we go come back full circle. Like, why would you not try? If doing something differently might improve your overall experience. Like, what is the harm in trying? Because if you're already so stressed out about it, you're not going to be more, you probably won't be more stressed trying to do it in a more proactive way. Um, But yeah, I guess I'm going off on a lot of tangents. I I, I just nerd out about this so much and I love it. (laughs) Um, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I think I've, I've put you on those tangents. So that's on me. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) That's fine. I just, um, 
Yeah. Like when it comes to discomfort in our day-to-day life, and sometimes that ends up becoming, you know, like depression, anxiety, sadness, or even uncomfortable emotions like anger, um, worry, Mm -hmm. fear, all of that kind of stuff. It's like the goal is not to have those go away because that would be kind of essentially like slicing out a portion of our human experience, which we don't want to do. So the goal of mental skills then becomes like, how do we learn how to self-regulate more effectively? And how capable are we to tolerate distress and have enough awareness to do what our bodies and minds need us to do to complete the stress cycle so we can return to baseline? Yeah. And so it's like if we're thinking about it from a like kind of physical training approach, Mm. we know that recovery is an important part of the equation. Like we cannot have high threshold, like, you know, threshold, like tempo workouts, threshold workouts, like every single day, like eventually our body quits. And that's kind of what happens internally when we stay stressed and stressed and stressed. And we're like marinating in this bag of like hormones and low sleep and impaired digestion and reduced immune function. And we're just like that chicken breast sitting in the bag in the sauce. But then like, no one actually takes us out and like cooks us. So then we just go rotten in the fridge. And like, that's like the long term negative health outcomes that come from stress that we're unwilling to look at and engage with. So that's why we want to increase the tolerance so that we can actually pull that bag of chicken out of the fridge and cook it up and move on. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. No. Oh my gosh. I love that analogy. So let's, let's, um, transition a little bit here because um, I'd love to turn the conversation yeah. over to your work in trauma, which is, I mean, when we're talking about discomfort, obviously, we're going to bring up a lot of that into the trauma conversation. Because um, I know that's a part of, mm-hmm. of the, your work that you're very passionate about. And um, I'd like to quickly speak to our listeners who may be tempted to exit here to be like, oh, well, I've never experienced, you know, some kind of big trauma. So I'm not sure if this applies to me. Um And as Amanda is about to educate us, trauma isn't exclusively events that involve near death or injury. Um, And so I guarantee there are some very valuable pieces of information in this conversation for all of you, um, because as human beings, we have a lot of healing to do. Um, So with that being said, Amanda, could you kind of start by defining how uh, we even want to be talking about trauma, um, what it really kind of looks like and consists of, I know we've maybe heard the terms big T and little t trauma. Um, so just dive us into that and then we'll, we'll get going into some of the uh, work that you do. Totally. Yeah. And like to preface my response, Mm. you know, we have a limited amount of time, so I will kind of speak in more like simple terms. And if you're interested in any more of what I'm talking about here, there are resources linked that are available to you that I strongly encourage you check out um, because it is such a fascinating topic. Um, But to start with your first question about like, what is the difference between our big T and our little T traumas? Um, And if we're thinking about it at like a neurological level, it's like there is no difference between them. Mm. And that's why they all count. Yes. Um, But when we're kind of talking and in conversation, our big T traumas are those like kind of near death, severe injury. But I like to think of it as like, if you can identify the one like quote, really bad thing that happened, like 
a lot of times that's going to be more of your big T traumas. And they're the things that we're seeing on TV shows or, you know, natural disasters, like something that can be more easily labeled. Um, and if we want to get into the nitty gritty, like if you pull out a DSM mm-hmm. and are looking at post-traumatic stress disorder, your big T traumas are anything that fit into that criterion 1A. Um, so it is a, you, it either happened to you, you witnessed it or it happened to someone close to you, but your life was at risk. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it, I, the, the biggest difference is that it is actually like you can point at it and be like, this is the thing that happened to me. And so, and it can also be kind of like a series of things. Cause obviously with our military mm-hmm. population, you know, if they're in active combat, um, it could be this like prolonged Period. exposure right. to intense stress. Um, but it's still, they're able to identify, like I was deployed and engaged in open fire with enemy forces. Right. And that was hard for A, B and C reasons. And I'm being vague because I don't want to unintentionally trigger any of our listeners. Yes. Um, and so, if, you know, and if we I, need to place warnings at the beginning, down. I can do that in post just so you know, if we yeah. want to call. And like the, and so then we get, to, right. And then we get to our little T traumas, which honestly, all of us have experienced at some point in our life. Yeah. <laughs> um, so little t trauma can be attachment trauma. So things that have come from our relationship with our parents. And I'm going to add a little asterisk and say, it doesn't have to be that our parents actually were neglectful mm-hmm. or abused us in some way. It could simply just be that when we're little kids, we don't have the cognitive capacity to like really think up alternate explanations for why things happen mm-hmm. beyond ourselves. And so the example that I use with a lot of people when I'm explaining this is like, if you are four years old and you're playing with your trucks on the floor and then mom calls you in for a snack and you leave your toys out and then maybe you get distracted and you start doing something else. And then you come home or your dad comes home from work later or your other mom you know, whatever your parental situation is. And so your other parent comes home from work and steps on your toy and explodes and starts yelling and swearing and maybe even at you because of course it was your toy. Mm -hmm. But as a four-year-old, your perspective of that is going to be, I did that. I must be bad. I can't, I can't do that again. And then maybe we have like an, an, a people pleaser or a perfectionist kind of gets born from that experience. Or maybe it's, I can't do the things that I like because it might hurt other people. You know, so like it's those like maladaptive negative conclusions about ourselves because as that four-year-old kid, we have no way of even thinking, well, maybe dad just had a bad day at work yeah. and stepping on my toy was unfortunate, but his response had nothing to do with me. Right. But then what happens is that that memory, the the traumatic memory, and when I say traumatic, I mean, trauma is like literally anything that overwhelms our ability to cope mm. or that we don't have enough information to make sense of. Mm-hmm. And so we come to that maladaptive conclusion about ourselves. But that memory kind of gets frozen in the perspective of that four-year-old or like, you know, later in life, frozen in the perspective of that 10-year-old who gave a speech in class and someone made fun of him and the whole class started laughing. And now it's like, I can't be successful no matter how hard I work. Um, so 
it's all of these little relational things that happen where we kind of like reach a plateau and that we don't have enough information to make sense of what's happening. So we default to thinking that we're to blame, but that perspective gets frozen into place. And because we are always referencing the past to make sense of the present, Mm -hmm. because again, like your other speaker said, our brains are brilliant and beautiful and can do so many amazing things. And they're also lazy and like to take shortcuts because it takes a lot of energy to think through everything as a new event. Mm -hmm. And so we are referencing that memory of I am bad. I can't leave my toys out. I can't enjoy things when we're approached with other situations that seem similar enough to it in the future. And that can be really difficult because if that's the lens through with which we're interpreting our experience, we will continue to respond with that like four-year-old response right. or that 11-year-old response, which doesn't really serve us in our day-to-day life. And so our little T traumas are these kind of like memories where we formed that maladaptive belief about ourselves, but that memory is not processed the same way that our other memories are. And it's also stored separately. So like, I like to say, it's like you have this supercomputer in your brain of all the adaptive information that you've learned that can like think logically and like, you know, kind of talk yourself through potential consequences and rewards of your behaviors. And, you know, it includes all of the Brene Brown books that you've yes. ever read in your life. And you're like, yes, shame and vulnerability is good. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got these trauma memories that are on like pen and paper files, like shoved in a shoebox in the back of your closet somewhere. <laughs> And so the two sources of information aren't communicating with each other. And that's why we can intellectually know things in our minds of like, yes, vulnerability is great. Self-compassion, something everyone needs to do. It's so important. And it still won't feel true for Mm -hmm. us. And it won't feel true in our bodies. And if you have ever experienced that in some way of like, I know that this is true, but it doesn't feel true. You might have a little few trauma in your history. And there's nothing wrong with that because we all do. Absolutely. And I think when we um, think about like our our, uh, family unit and how that might have created some of those little T trauma uh, moments, I want to maybe speak from my own experience where when I was first processing a lot of that, I I tended to want to be like, oh, but I had like a normal family. I had a good family. I had good parents. And like, that's nothing against your parents. Like if your parents had great intentions raising you, that's amazing. You know, I'm glad you had that experience, but they're humans. They're imperfect. They're going to respond because they've also had unprocessed little T trauma from their childhood. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's that generational trauma or that um, cycle of people just responding the way they've been taught to respond. So it's not on your parents for reacting um, maybe inappropriately when they stepped on that toy or or what have you. Um, so I just wanted to maybe mm-hmm. point that out for our listeners who was like, no, but I had a great family because oh, we sure. might have, but it's still, we could still yeah, have that. Yeah. It's, yeah. And it's a, again, it's like a processing error. Yeah. So you can have great parents. And if you are as a kid, misinterpreting what's going on doesn't mean your parents are bad people and it also doesn't mean that you're a bad person it just means that like oh you came to a conclusion that wasn't accurate or helpful but now that's your reference and that's with you now in the world (laughs) yeah and that that's with you now unless you want to go do the work to rewire that memory Mm -hmm. so that it can be integrated with your adaptive memory network um and so yeah that's I, I mean, there's research that has come out that has indicated that the little T traumas are 
you know, actually the big T traumas. Mm. And so things like divorce, bullying, like academic failure, work stress, um, like interpersonal family conflict, divorce, um, neglect, kind of all of those things, um, participants in this study compared to a group of people with like the diagnosable big T traumas actually scored higher on a scale measuring symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, other studies that have come out have um, indicated that military personnel who have a history of adverse childhood experiences, so again, the little mm-hmm. T traumas, are more likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder after combat than those who had you know, relatively healthy childhood experiences where there weren't a lot of little T traumas that were happening. And so that brings us back to, you know, like what actually happens in trauma. And I like, I like to think of trauma as like a stress fracture. So like we are under so much stress, either because we believe our life is legitimately in danger, or we don't have enough information. And that is stressful too. Mm -hmm. Um, that our ability to in like kind of, again, integrate what is happening with our adaptive memory network is broken. But a lot of other things happen neurologically too. And I'm not a neuroscientist, but I'm very like, this is my whole career. So uh-huh. I've done quite a bit of research, but it's like, so some, some really important things happen and they happen to anyone with trauma and we can experience flashbacks in different ways, whether it be somatic or, um, you know, kind of a more visual auditory mm-hmm. things, you know, like what you see in the movies. Um, but our, our frontal lobe is like our brain's supercomputer and that's our adaptive memory network. So that's the thing that does logical thinking. It can come up with alternate solutions. It is kind of where our logic and reason and a lot of our communication, our ability to communicate comes in and like make important connections between things. Um, and so when we experience trauma and when we're kind of reliving trauma in some way, that whole part of our brain down regulates yeah. and kind of stops working. So that's, that's one important thing that happens. Another thing is that we have our amygdala and our brainstem and all of those other brain structures in that same area. And that's kind of at the back of our neck. And I call that like our T-Rex brain mm-hmm. because it's just responsive. It's our fear center. It really doesn't care about logic and reason. Yeah. It's just going to like destroy the city. <laughs> like you cannot reason like in Jurassic Park. They're not like, hey, Mr. T-Rex, like we made a mistake. We're stuck right. out here in the rain. Please don't eat me while I'm on the toilet. Like it just does what it's going to do because that's kind of what it was biologically designed to do. Right. So that really gets amped up. And that's how we get pulled into fight, flight, bond, freeze, Mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff. Um, Another thing that happens is, you know, we have like our thinking, you know, the traditional thinking brain on the left and feeling brain on the right. And so our emotion brain gets lit up and our thinking brain down regulates and like fun story. All of our language centers are on the left side of our brain which means that we are like all feeling with no ability to even communicate what we're experiencing to other people. So we're kind of like trapped in our own bodies. And then I say cool, but it's not cool (laughs) if you're the one experiencing it. It's like kind of the, the other big thing that happens is we have, um, what, you know, some research call it the mohawk of our brain. Mm. So if you think of the brain as two hemispheres, there are a series of structures that exist between the two and kind of form that cortex there. And so the mohawk of the brain is things that are responsible for our sense of time, our sense of self, and our capacity for self-compassion. 
and I'm sure you've guessed it, but all of that down regulates too. Mm -hmm. So we're all feeling no logic. Our T-Rex brain is running amok and telling us that we're in danger and we're going to die. Like, unless we do something about it, we don't have the ability to communicate what we're feeling to other people. And it seems like what we're feeling is going to last forever. Yeah. We don't really know who we are anymore, and we've lost the ability to be nice to ourselves. Right. And if this wasn't already obvious, how <laughs> how is this connecting in the world of wellness? So, like, when all of this is happening, how are you <laughs> – I'm, I'm asking you to make it very obvious, but, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's not obvious for everyone, you know. Are, you're probably not going to be making great decisions for your health and well-being when you're in that state. Could you speak a little more to that and how that looks in, like, Absolutely the behavior? Absolutely not. Yeah. So this is really when we, we kind of shift into autopilot Mm. and we're very reactive. And, you know, when I said earlier, like our brain is taking shortcuts, it's saying, oh, this is similar to what that first thing was. So we must do exactly the same thing now. And so that's kind of like if your partner says something to you and it's in a tone that you didn't like. And then all of a sudden it feels like you're 16 again and kind of screaming and feeling out of control. Like that's a trauma response. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd like to add like acknowledging your trauma and your trauma responses is not a free pass to treat other people like garbage is saying like it, like we have to take ownership for our own actions and we're always responsible for them. And we can have some grace and compassion and at least communicate to the people who we are with and who may be affected by our trauma responses secondarily that, hey, I am taking steps to work on this. This is not the way that I want to be reacting. I'm struggling to do anything different right now. Um, but then like, if you're saying that, actually take the steps and like get find a mental health counselor yeah. and start doing the trauma work to like really resolve and move past that. Because again, what would your life be like if the past didn't keep coming into the present. Mm -hmm. And what might your future be like if you were able to fully live in alignment with your values as an adult, as like the age you are now with all of your beautiful goals and dreams and ambitions. Um, And so, yes, like at the extreme end of the spectrum, it like, it kind of is like what we're seeing in movies where people are having flashbacks and either they're um, in a state of like anger or rage and are very kind of like outwardly like violent mm. either with their words and sometimes with their actions or they're kind of being like violent inward um, and kind of like, but, you know, almost like numbed out and, you know, like kind of rocking back and forth, like have that like glassed over mm-hmm. look in their eye. And that is what happens when we go into dorsal vagal shutdown. So mm-hmm. when the tr- what we're experiencing in our trauma response is too much for our body, our nervous system is very smart and beautiful. And it's looking out for us, it just like shuts the whole thing down. Right. And so when I was saying before, how sometimes certain areas of our brain are going to become overactivated, and other areas are going to downregulate, when we're in dorsal vagal shutdown, there's very lim- like limited activation in our brain at all because it's like we cannot be here anymore. Um, but on a on the less severe mm-hmm. or less extreme end of the spectrum, it really is like if you are in an experience and you feel like your reaction is kind of beyond what would be reasonably expected in that situation, it's likely that you are kind of like flipped into trauma brain Mm -hmm. and don't have full access to all of the things that make you you and allow you to make reason-based decisions. 
Um, and so it's like, you know, if you're throwing up before giving a speech and feeling like your world will end unless it goes as well as you want it to, that's a bit beyond wanting to do well. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Like, um, and so it would, that would be something where like, maybe there is something in your past that has put a lot of pressure on you performing in social situations mm-hmm. or communicating something intelligently. Like, I don't know what it is and I'm not trying to give any specific clinical sure. advice. I'm just throwing out like random examples. Um, but it's like, you're not just a nervous person. You might be more like anxious in general, like as a, mm. as a trait, but like there's, there's something else happening and it is like an actual brain injury, not a mental disorder. Mm-hmm. The same thing that I was talking about with like kind of the left side of our brain shutting down and affecting our language centers is like similar to what we see when people have strokes on the left side of their brain. Yeah. And we don't beat up people with strokes and tell them that they just need to switch their mindset (laughs) or try harder and they'll be able to communicate better. Like, so like that's, that is the kind of grace that we need to extend to ourselves as far as like, if trauma is something that we all experience in some way throughout our lives, like, and, and there's measurable and visible like on different kinds of brain scans, like, and it affects our brain in a way that we can actually see. Mm -hmm does it matter what caused it? You know, like if you break your leg in a car accident versus breaking your leg, doing a dumb skateboard trick, your leg is still broken. And, and the doctors aren't like, Oh, well, this wasn't a legitimate way to break your leg. So we're not going to cast it for you. (laughs) No pain meds, you know, like, um, and so I think the more that we can think about trauma as, uh, like an injury Mm -hmm. or, you know, like that, like stress fracture, the, the more we can like kind of heal from it as individuals, but also like collectively, because if we're all operating out of trauma brain, nothing is going to happen. Mm. Nothing will change. Um, just thinking about all the things that are upsetting and distressing that are going on in the world right now, like full stop. Like as a clinician, I'm seeing a bunch of traumatized people perpetuating trauma on other people. Right. And especially from the relational capacity. So it's like, what if we removed the stigma of trauma and it became more acceptable for people to actually get assistance and allow themselves to heal. Our brains want to heal. They're always pulling like pulling towards healing. So sometimes we just need a little push to get there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I could talk about this for 18 more days. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I love it. And and I wish we could, but, um, so let's move into then what that approach to healing looks like. Um, and you've mentioned, uh, before that, you prefer a bottom-up versus a top-down approach. Um, can you tell us, like, define those terms for us, what the, that means and why um, and how uh, that approach to trauma treatment would look? So with our top-down approach, that is kind of, we're entering through that supercomputer in the frontal lobe. And so we are talking about what is happening with the intention of somehow shifting what is happening inside of our body and our body states. So we're going in through like kind of the intellectual doorway. When we're doing a bottom up approach, we're actually starting with the body and Mm. things that are kind of like, you know, let's give the T-Rex a cow. Um, You know, if it's hungry, let's feed it. (laughs) Freaking out. Let's see if we can calm it down in some way. But like, again, we can't reason with the T-Rex. And so Mm. we need to start 
at the body if it's our body that is being really activated so that we have the capacity to engage in more of that like logical thinking and decision making because we know that those areas of our brain that are required to do that like language um thinking through the consequences of our actions doing all those other things that are happening in the frontal lobe in that supercomputer um they log off when Mm -hmm. we get too activated And so we need to kind of go through the side door of like body-based approaches to bring us back into a zone of tolerance where our frontal lobe rejoins the party. Um, Because without that, we're not able to, we can like talk all we want, but none of it's like kind of getting to the rest of our body to let us know what we're doing. So they're speaking two different languages. Um, And so our top-down approaches are going to be more of our like traditional talk therapies um, it's like, oh, what were you thinking at the time? What are you thinking about it now? How do you think your feelings are, are your, how do you think your thoughts are affecting your feelings and then affecting mm. your behaviors? And there's so much value to that, but it doesn't really work with trauma. It mm. can be very, very helpful after the trauma work is done because that means that we now have access to our frontal lobe and our language centers and all the things that we need for that work to be effective. And so our bottom up approaches are going to be like body based things. There was a really neat study after nine 11 that showed that the, the, the treatments for lack of a better word that Mm. helped people the most after nine 11 were things like acupuncture, massage, yoga, Mm. mindfulness, and then EMDR, which is the modality of therapy that I specialize in. Um, But those are all bottom-up approaches where we're learning to regulate our body and calm down our nervous system so that we can then eventually engage in the talk therapy to like kind of better cognitively understand what's been going on. Okay. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that when we are in those like states of shutdown, our lizard brain or our T-Rex brain is in control, we are not going to be able to process like these types of therapies that are thinking oriented. So we need to get out of our our head into our physical body Mm -hmm. before we can begin to process that stuff. So what does that look like when, so I'm imagining when somebody is faced with, with, um, they're trying maybe to heal their trauma and they've been given all of these thought-based approaches, how does, how does that disconnect show up? Like, what does it look like for a person who is maybe uh, not, not receiving the, the type of healing or treatment that is working for them? How does that show up for them? Yeah. So this is such a complex topic and question. Mm -hmm. You're kind of asking all the right things. And what I have seen in my practice and in the literature and in all of the trainings that I've done is that our present day issues, the things that we're struggling with in the present are symptoms of past trauma. And what happens when folks come into my office and they're like, well, I've done trauma work before. I've like gotten as far as I can go. Um, Mm. But, you know, they're still, you know, feeling extremely anxious about things related to their trauma. So they have a understanding of what is happening within their bodies and why it's happening because they've done the the talk therapy and that like top down Mm -hmm. approach, but it's not actually stopping those things from happening. Mm -hmm. Maybe they've developed Mm -hmm. some skills to effectively cope with 
what is coming up, but it still continues to come up in a way that's disrupting their life and, um, and that they would want to be different. And so So it's often that logical understanding piece, right? Like I understand what's happening to me, but I still can't seem to effectively change the way I'm responding. Yeah. So it's like, I understand what's happening to me. I've probably learned some skills that help me tolerate or manage what's coming up Mm. better than I used to, but it's still coming up. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah. And so like that is indicative to me that some valuable trauma work and some valuable like prep work was started because we do need that awareness and we do need that skills Mm -hmm. a lot of times to do the trauma work, but that like the body still needs to be healed. The body is continuing to relive the trauma. And so Mm -hmm. uh, EMDR is the approach that I use, but it basically uses the same mechanism that we already use in REM sleep. And I know you're a sleep expert. Um, And can you, sorry, can you uh, define the acronym for us? So EMDR is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And so it's like, it seems a little woo woo. And I like, sometimes I hear people's eyes roll through the film and I'm explaining it. (laughs) I love it. I'm here for it. Well, either like follow a light bouncing back and forth on the computer, or I'm like actually waving my hand in front of your face. Um, But you uh, are moving your eyes back and forth. You can also use like tactile or auditory stimulation if you need to. Um, But while you're doing that, we are kind of like calling up the traumatic memory but also maintaining dual awareness of like, I am not there now. I'm not in the car accident. Now I'm sitting in Amanda's office in 2021. I'm safe now. I'm not there. And that allows us to go in and shift that negative belief about ourselves of I'm Mm. not safe. I'm in danger. Um, I can't trust my judgment, you know, whatever the belief is to Mm. something that is more adaptive, like, I can take care of myself now. I have choices now. I am good. I am enough. You know, whatever that more adaptive cognition is. And it doesn't make the memory go away. And it often doesn't make it less of a painful memory. But it Mm. removes the charge when we are thinking about it now. Which means that when we're presented with similar situations, like needing to get into the car to drive to the grocery store... And in the past, that would have been something that was very triggering, now becomes something that doesn't have that same emotional charge. So we're not reliving the past in the present moment. The present moment is the present. And because that memory was able to be integrated into our adaptive memory network, it can still be painful, but it's not taking over our experience. Does that make Mm. sense? Yeah. 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 Super cool. But things like yoga can be profoundly impactful in reducing symptoms of trauma because it requires participants to actually be in their body and now they're like making all these connections coming back to this part of like discomfort as being a part of life mm-hmm. yoga is about accepting discomfort without judgment like yeah gosh have you held warrior two for like three minutes straight like <laughs> it is not comfortable and it's yeah. still empowering and one of the mm-hmm. things about yoga is that you have the instructor saying, and we're going to hold this for three or four more breaths. So we're reminding our brains that discomfort is temporary. Right. And we can tolerate it if we know it's going to end. Uh, and so yeah. there have been quite a, a couple of like really neat studies about comparing like yoga and Prozac 
And, mm-hmm. and like yoga has had at least as much of an effect on reducing PTSD symptoms and the effect has continued beyond the actual treatment protocol. Whereas with pharmaceuticals, a lot of times participants start returning to baseline after right. the treatment is removed. Um, and so, you know, when we're talking about, you know, who's funding the research, I'm like, why is this not like plastered on billboard? Yeah. Uh, like yoga can help you heal. Like yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> crunchy granola woo woo way, like in a like truly legitimate, like scientific way, <laughs> science-based way. And, uh, yeah. and it's cause it doesn't benefit pharmaceutical companies to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and so when we are already struggling and in pain, like who is going to dive into the depths of Google and, or like ask Alexa, like, where is the research that I'm not seeing that's helping right. me understand my treatment options because I'm dealing with trauma. Um, mm-hmm. And so you don't have to have, this is like my side note, you don't have to have all of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder to have experienced trauma and be affected by it. Because trauma more often presents as anxiety or depression than it does as like full-blown PTSD. And so Mm -hmm. like really we have no reason to minimize our experiences. And we also don't need to compare them to other people. Like, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of something that I like to drive home. Like trauma is trauma is trauma. Just like how a broken leg is a broken leg is a broken leg. Um, And a stroke is a stroke is a stroke. So it's like we can just gracefully and compassionately accept like, Hey, I have something that I need to address and it will greatly enhance my quality of life if I'm willing to do that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. And I know we just scraped the surface and I I was, I predicted this beforehand (laughs) that we would get to this point in the podcast and be like, Oh, but there's so many more things, so many avenues that we could take with this. Um, but I, I'm going to force you to to maybe take one last moment to share uh, what you would like our listeners to take away when it comes to trauma or mental skills or any of the things that we've talked about today. Oh, gosh. that's <laughs> We talked about so many great things. Um, I think the main thing that I would like people to walk away with is to rethink what we label as like good or bad Mm. as we limit ourselves with those types of judgments, Um, especially when it comes to our performance, our mental health, our careers, our relationships. Um, Those terms have become overused in a way that is dangerous and harmful to ourselves and to others. Things like racism are bad, (laughs) Eating a cookie after dinner is not bad. Not achieving a PR performance is not bad. Um, So good and bad are things that have moral judgments. Being traumatized in some way or being impacted by trauma, it does not make you bad. Mm. It simply is. And so it could be unpleasant to be living with trauma but it's not bad because you're not bad. Um, and so like our language really, really matters and how we're talking about things and to just, I'd really love to encourage people to, you know, kind of suspend judgment for just a moment and think, you know, what am I not doing in my life that might greatly enhance my experience of it? Like, is it trauma work? Maybe. 
Is it mindfulness practice? Maybe. Is it restructuring my routines or my approach to class projects? Maybe. Is it improving my communication skills? Maybe. But we all are imperfect and we all have areas Mm -hmm. where we can continue to learn and grow and maybe just approach those with an open mind and curiosity and kind of lean into the possibility of like, what could my life be like if I was willing to address these areas that make me uncomfortable? Oh my gosh. Well, I love that. That's, that's wisdom that you only acquire by listening to other experts and from hearing and reading and working through this. Um, and I know for my own journey, I, speaking of UNT where we met, I, I specifically remember the first time I was introduced to like a mindfulness based questionnaire. And I remember reading the items and been like, I'm not mindful at all, you know? And that was like one of the points that I was like, should I be, you know? And I, and I feel like, especially in, um, for a lot of our listeners, those transitional periods and into young adulthood and, and finding yourself maybe wanting to be a parent soon or, or having uh, more mature relationships with people, that work is really important. Um, that language that we use is really important when it comes to having those healthy relationships and, and moving forward in a way that ultimately serves us the best. So mm-hmm. I, I love that. I so appreciate you being here. Um, and I, I will encourage everybody to go to your Instagram at Epic Wellness Co. And everything's going to be linked in the show notes. There's other ways uh, you can find Amanda. But um, yeah, if you if you want to know more, if you are slightly opened up to this idea and you're like, wow, there's so much left to uncover. Amanda is there on Instagram and posting and educating. Um, and so there's definitely resources for you. And she's also going to be kind enough to link some stuff for us, I think, um, in our show notes as well. Uh, I know your schedule is pretty full for now, but for those interested in working with you, um, maybe in the future, can you tell us about the services you provide and the best way to reach you? Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, I love living in the messy middle, but I have to kind of designate my services into different groups. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I know. I'm like, oh, who's the hypocrite now? But, uh, but truly it's, I offer like individual counseling and psychotherapy services to residents of the state of Washington. Um, And that would include things like EMDR, which I just discussed and would be happy to explain in more detail if it was something you are curious about or are looking for a clinician who offers that service in your own state. Um, Mm -hmm. I, never shy away from helping people get connected with the resources that they need in their own communities. Um, So please don't feel like you can't reach out to me just because you don't live in Washington. Just know that unfortunately I will not be able to be your therapist um, Mm -hmm. if you don't live in the same state. Um, But in addition to EMDR therapy, I also do do traditional talk therapy through the lens of CBT, which is cognitive behavior therapy, and also DBT, which is dialectical behavior therapy, and really focusing on skills like mindfulness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, interpersonal effectiveness. Um, And I also do mindfulness training specifically for those trying to better cope with anxiety, depression, and stress. And so that's like my clinical side, and that's limited to Washington State. Then we like kind of take a sidestep over to my mental performance side, which is non-clinical services. So if you're reaching out to me for non-clinical services, you do not have to live in the state of Washington, but be aware that if we talk and, and decide that you would benefit more from clinical mental health counseling, I will refer you to somebody else. Um, but if you're struggling with a routine, a lot of folks I know are 
um, dealing with added stress of like homeschooling or just Mm -hmm. adjusting to a new schedule, or you're an athlete. Um, I work with, you know, junior elite athletes all the way up to Olympic and Paralympic athletes on the mental performance side. I do take a mindfulness-based approach to performance enhancement. It's kind of like a different flavor of the same ice cream. You know, as we were talking about like way in the beginning, like the mental skills can be applied to everyone. Um, And so I cannot wholly separate my clinical training from my mental performance training, just like how you as athletes cannot fully separate your sport life from the rest of your life as a whole. Um, But we do everything through the lens of performance on the mental performance side. Um, But it can be any number of goals, whether you are struggling with pre-performance anxiety or you simply want to become more present oriented so that you can leverage all of your training to a new level in competition. Um, And so those are kind of the two camps. And I work with people and groups in both sides. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm also available to be hired to work with your team or organization, or if you have a small group that would benefit from like a one day workshop or a multi-week group. So um, I do a lot of things. I have a lot of fun working with people. All of that can be found on my website at epicwellnessco.com. Or you can email me at amanda at epicwellnessco.com and I'd be happy to start that conversation with you. Amazing. And we're going to link all of the information below so that you can reach out if needed um, to Amanda. And uh, I just want to thank you again for coming on and sharing all of your knowledge and um, cool facts that I didn't know about you playing volleyball in the UK. (laughs) Until next time, we want you to live well, demand better, and stay messy. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. This was so fun.